Hello, and welcome to Every Sublime. This is your host, Josh Summers, and it's an honor, pleasure, and delight to have you here. Before I give you today's talk, I want to just announce, I'm excited to announce, an update in the practice schedule for the Riverbird Sangha. So this is to all members of our practice community and also to all potential people that are interested in joining our, our practice uh, community. Um, we are a practice community that, that focuses on yin yoga, qigong, and meditation, particularly Buddha Dharma meditation, looking at how all of these practices really support the one big practice of awakening compassion and wisdom within the heart. And uh, for two years now, we've been running a, a kind of eclectic schedule with classes at different times uh, during the week. Um, but the feedback we've received and the requests we've received from numerous of our members is to both offer a Dharma session or a meditation session that suits members that are living in Europe, as well as to offer shorter practices, namely 60-minute practices. And we're going to be integrating both of those requests in our new schedule. The new schedule will start and go into effect on November 14th. And this will, uh, the change will be that all our classes now will be at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So if you're in the East Coast, if you're in Europe, even if you're in Asia, we're hoping that those times are going to make our classes more accessible. We realize that if you're Central Time in the United States or North America or on the West Coast Time, this is going to make things a little bit more challenging. But fear not, we have the recordings, the replays in our library, and those practices will continue to support you um, in that way. Um, but the other feature is that their classes now will be 60 minutes plus. And what I mean by that is there's going to be a 60-minute core practice plus a half-hour optional practice after, which will include, the, the, the half-hour optional practice will include you know, optional meditation and discussion with us. But the 60-minute block will be a focus on either the meditation, qigong, or yin yoga. And when you search now, when you go into our library as a member and search for 60-minute practices, you will start to see those. So we're hoping that this um, variety of times that we offer our classes and the, I mean, the variety of lengths of our classes, that this will be able to support you so you can choose the, the kind of practice that you're looking for. But um, check it out on our website, joshsummers.net. And if you're not already a member, we are offering a free two-week trial. So give us a chance. Try us out. If you're interested in yin yoga, qigong, and meditation, and how the three function synergistically together to, to really harmonize our body, mind, and heart, come on and check us out. Uh, there's a, a free ebook for you called The What, Why, and How of Yin Yoga as well as a free two-week trial to practice with us when you subscribe to our newsletter. So if you go over to joshsummers.net or follow the link in the show notes, you'll figure out how to do that. Please let us know if you have any questions or requests or um, feedback in any form. We're very open and receptive to hearing from you. But in today's episode, what I want, what I want to try to do is I want to offer reflections in this talk about how to approach working within a sangha. It doesn't have to be ours. Whatever sangha you're in, how to work with the dharma, how to use these supports to channel your own journey into your own heart to discover the dharma within. That's what the whole path is really about, I think, is how do we discover the dharma within ourselves? Um, and, and this 
goes well when we learn how to skillfully uh, draw from the energy of our supports, namely our community and the the the, the, um, rece- the 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 teachings that we've received, we can draw on these supports um, and not be dependent on them, but really develop a sense of self-reliance to discover things within ourselves and within our own lived experience, and that's super essential. So I hope you enjoyed today's talk. I hope you'll uh, consider joining our our sangha and practicing along with us. We really look forward to practicing with you in our new schedule. For me, it's going to really establish a much more of a monastic flow for me during the week, giving me a lot more time to devote to the writing that I'm engaged with to put out some new books on the relationship between yin yoga and Chinese medicine and yin yoga and the kind of meditation that I'm advocating here. So stay tuned, and I hope to see you soon. Take good care and enjoy today's talk. For this evening, um, I was thinking, trying to figure out how to have a little bit of an extra, extra layer of ceremony or extra layer of um, formality. And I, I, I have a very small tea candle that, I, that Terry and I keep on our, on our altar, which I often will light when I practice meditation myself. So I'm just going to light the small tea candle uh, for this evening. You won't, I don't think you'll be able to see it when I put it off the screen. Maybe I'll bring it back if we need a little uh, extra light in the talk. Um, but I was uh, just in, in, in view of the changes coming, and I'll get to that if you haven't heard about changes coming yet. Um, but in view of the changes coming, I wanted to just offer some reflections about practice, and as I do, but also practice seen within the Sangha and how. Um, I might, I mean, essentially how I might suggest you consider framing your engagement with our, with our group, um, with our, with our practice group. So I lit a candle and, um, that always takes me back to the times I've been on retreat, um, particularly at the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts, when they've held what are called monastic retreats and monastic retreats are, um, uh, a meditation retreat, a silent meditation retreat where the teachers are monastics. They are either nuns or m- monks from um, the Thai forest community. And um, I didn't start my retreat life with these monastics. I started with uh, lay teachers, teachers, people that um, live in the world like us um, and that were more or less professionalized Dharma teachers. Um, but on those retreats that I did with lay teachers, there was never any ceremony or very, very little ceremony, no ritual, no candles, no incense, no chanting. It was more or less just show up and get some instruction about how to be with yourself, to look into your experience. And that was great. That was great for for a while. Um, uh, and I would say I got curious about what the more traditional form of practice looked like or what the more traditional form of monastic practice look like. So I was always eyeing the monastic retreat on the retreat schedule and conditions conspired at some point to allow me to attend um, a few of them. And what it was, I was immediately struck by the ritual that was enacted within this community, 
where every time a monastic would come to their cushion, they would bow down on their knees to the Buddha three times, and then they would sit, and when they'd get up after their meditation, they'd again face the Buddha statue and bow down three times. At the beginning of talks, there would be uh, flowers arranged and a, a candle or two lit and some incense lit, and then there would inevitably be a good 10-15 minutes of chanting in uh, the language of Pali, which I'm not fluent in. Um, so there was that piece. And I, I have to say that it always felt struck me as um, uncomfortably religious in the sense that I was personally, I was raised in a, in a very agnostic secular household um, and was for most of my life, more or less baffled by organized religion. I just, I just was confused by it. I didn't understand it at all. Um, and then as I became uh, more of a young adult, my arrogance started to rise up and I started to look down upon organized religion. Oh, those, those churchgoers, look at them. What are they doing? So, but when I, when I saw this, this form in Buddhism, when I saw this religious form in Buddhism, I was, I was kind of just taken aback. It's like, I don't know what to, I don't know what to make of this. And there was a lot of resistance I had around it at times, but invariably, and this is the point I want to come to, invariably, I um, came to really appreciate the ritual form um, by the end of these retreats, that I too participated in the bowing, that I would, um, you know, get involved with the chanting. And when I'd leave those retreats, I'd want to preserve some aspect of that uh, essence or that energy that I, I, I participated with. And so, you know, for a while I might, when I come to my meditation in the morning, I would light a candle or a stick of incense or something like that, maybe do a little bit of chanting myself. Um, and there was a way I was trying to keep it going, to keep that, that, that vibe of the monastic retreat where, because it was clear to me that in the monastic retreat, it was... That's where people were going for, really going for it. You know, that we talked about Nibbana on those retreats. You know, that people were, they cared about what, what is awakening, what is enlightenment. And, um, and I was captivated by that. But as I look back at my former self, as I look with hindsight at my former self, um, I'm aware that I, you know, I couldn't necessarily see it then as clearly as I do now. But looking back, I could really see that one of the energies that was incredibly alive in my practice was this glaring insecurity. And it was an insecurity that my practice was never going to match what I saw of those divine beings in robes. That I was never going to be at the level of a monastic. And that my practice was somehow always going to be relegated to a second-hand um, barely passable, barely respectable kind of meditation life. But that said, I did uh, internalize some, some habits at the time. And one of them was that when I would do my yin yoga practice, I would just accompany my yin yoga time with a Dharma talk by one of any of the teachers that I practiced with, but particularly with the monastics that I was working with at the time. So I'd, I'd do my yin yoga practice with a, with a, with a, with a talk running on in the background. And, um, and for me, that was uh, a, a real 
wonderful way to have access to teaching, but to really try to integrate in real time what I was hearing within my embodied experience in yin yoga. Because I, again, I, I always see that the, the dynamics of yin yoga, the dynamics of yoga in general, the dynamics of qigong, all involve similar themes to what we encounter when we sit down in stillness with ourselves. So I would practice um, with, along with recordings. And this is long before you know, we had Zoom classes and long before we had replays in libraries. Um, there would just be, you know, uh, websites that had inventories of, of talks given by any variety of teacher. And I would listen to them. But even while I was doing that, that insecurity gnawed at me. It was, it would chew at my, at my conscience. And it wasn't just the, the insecurity that I wasn't... <laughs> One of our members has got a, a very playful dog, <laughs> giving her some love. Um, but it, it wasn't just that I, I felt insecure around, uh, you know, not practicing enough. There was just a way that in the conversations I was having with fellow practitioners, you know, when it, whether it was at tea time at, at the centers or at, over breaks or things, People are always talking about, oh, I'm going to go do that two-month retreat, or I'm going to sign up for that three-month retreat, and I just got off that four-month retreat, and I'm working in this particular Burmese style now of getting deep into absorptions, going deep into the jhanas, and I, I personally barely understood what the jhanas were at the time, or uh, there was always a way that, as um, one of the monastics I worked with, Ajahnamro talked about, he said, there's always the grass is greener syndrome. The grass is greener in the other monastery syndrome than the other monastery and the other center and the other system. Um, things are going to be better. Things are more in, more intense, more hardcore, more enlightened, more direct, more fast, whatever it is. And I can still recognize the 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 currents of that energy of insecurity in myself. That you know, there's a sense of like inadequacy that I haven't done a three-year retreat or I haven't done two three-year retreats that you hear about in some systems. And while I was pondering kind of my my relationship to my 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 former self's relationship to practice and looking back upon it, one of the I started to feel a gratitude for my former self. And by that I mean I Due to causes, whatever the, the conditions at the time, I wasn't able to go all in in any one system. You know, I couldn't live at a center. I couldn't go to a monastery. I didn't want to feel comfortable going to a monastery full time and becoming a monastic. Um, and there was, I couldn't really even commit myself to one teacher. I was, I was so inspired by so many voices in the Dharma that, you know, when people say, who's your primary teacher? I would say... You know, I have a, a short list of 10 people I really dig. That's that's my uh, the best I can say. But beyond that, what I started to, what I've been appreciating recently about my former self's insecurity is that it taught me a degree of self-reliance. And that's really the theme that I want to kind of address tonight, this theme of what does it mean to be a self-reliant practitioner and how do we develop self-reliance in our practice? And whenever I think of that um, that theme, to be self-reliant within the Dharma, I 
uh, have to, I always crack a little bit of a grin because the, I have this story that comes back to me that I heard multiple times from one of my teachers, Larry Rosenberg. And I think I've shared it here at least once, but it's it's an oldie and goldie and worth hearing another time. But Larry uh, began his Dharma studies um, and spent a lot of time in Korea, particularly in a Zen Korean uh, monastery. And there was another Westerner practicing with Larry in Korea at the time. And this other Westerner happened to be a professor of Asian art history. So he was a, a scholar of Asian art. And it became known to Larry that this professor had discovered and heard about a Buddha statue that was on the top of this mountain, near, not too far from the monastery. And that it was reputed to be the most beautiful, like sublimely uh, formed image of the Buddha in all of Korea. It's the most beautiful Buddha image of, of in all of Korea. And so after some time of, stay, of working and practicing in the monastery, um, this professor and Larry arranged to take a trip to the mountain. And this involved, you know, a few hour drive to get to the mountain. And then it involved a several hour hike up the mountain to get to the temple where the statue was kept. And of course, as these stories go, it wasn't sunny. It wasn't, you know, bright, shiny, clear skies. It was rainy most of the hike. And they got quite muddy and wet and were probably dealing with some challenging conditions on their way up the mountain. But when they got there, as they approached the summit and they, the little temple that was on, at the top of the summit, the excitement in the professor's heart was just, according to Larry, incredibly palpable. He was sort of twitching with excitement, like, I'm going to see this Buddha image finally. I can't wait to see it. And as the story goes, they enter the temple, and at the far end of the temple is the little, um, the puja, uh, the prayer set up where there's, there, there was some candles, a little platform, and space for the statue. Only in the space where the statue was supposed to be, there was just space. There was no statue. There was no Buddha statue. And the, you know, the professor starts saying, well, there's, there's got to be a mistake. It's got to be around here somewhere and started looking around other parts of the temple. But Larry approached the, the, the little, um, the altar where the statue was meant to be and saw that there was a small sign on the altar that said, if you can't see the Buddha here, you better get back down the mountain and keep practicing. Looking around the squares, does any are there any glimmers of recognition of aha? Yeah, of course. That's I love those Zen stories. If you can't see the Buddha here, you better get back down the mountain and keep practicing. What's the message? As Larry would translate in, in his inimitable way, he would say, if you're looking for the Buddha outside of yourself, you're looking in the wrong direction. You're looking in the wrong direction. Which brings me to a probably one of the most quoted quotations from the Buddha, which is to be a lamp unto yourself. Be a lamp unto yourself. And I remember when my insecure, like my older former self, 
insecure self heard that uh, that line, be a lamp unto yourself. And I was reflecting on this earlier. It, it's almost like I, in, I internalize that statement, be a lamp unto yourself. Look within, find the Buddha within, be a lamp unto yourself. I internalize that like a, almost like, um, like a, like a libertarian. Like, I don't need anybody. I can just do this. I can figure this out myself. I don't need teachers. I don't need sanghas. I don't need dharma centers. I don't need dharma books. I don't need chanting. I don't need sticks of incense. I will need to be a lamp unto myself. And that has certainly inspired a, a very strong ethos within Buddhism of self-reliance. To really take full responsibility for your journey to look within. But when I reflect on that now, and particularly when I reflect on that statement that the Buddha made, be a lamp unto yourself in context with the whole body of his teachings, it doesn't hold up that he's saying, you don't need Sangha, you don't need community, you don't need teaching, you don't need teachers. Because his whole body of teaching is, is, is a way articulates the role and value of all those conditions to have the community of like-minded individuals or like-minded enough that value the conditions of practice, the Dharma itself and the path and the direction that this path leads. He's not saying you don't need a teacher or spiritual friends, as, as the early system would call it, good friends that, that, that you can talk to on the path. So what does it mean to be a lamp unto yourself if he's saying you, you do need teachings and sangha and community and support? What, is it, what does that mean? And I want to suggest um, a couple of a couple of interpretations of what that phrase be a lamp unto yourself might might signify and they're just suggestions they're just potential interpretations that i've um come to um take them as reflections i encourage you to 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 take them as reflections contemplate them see what in your own experience they they resonate with what's of value but the first thing i think that uh, I think the Buddha might be getting at when he says, be a lamp unto yourself, is that he's actually, I think, trying to say, remember that the lamp is already lit. Remember that the lamp is already lit. And by that, I mean, his teachings refer to sati, mindfulness, awareness cultivating awareness, remembering awareness. Talk about mindfulness a lot of mindfulness of things, being mindful of an activity, being mindful of your breathing, being mindful of your body, being mindful of your reactions. We talk about being mindful of things. But the, the and that's certainly true. That 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 application of mindfulness serves the process of being aware in real time of what's occurring. So I'm not I'm not negating that. I'm just trying to fill in a little bit more that from some other interpretations that I've appreciated, which is namely that yes, we're aware of things occurring, but the lamp unto yourself, the lamp that's already lit, is awareness shining 
upon it's the the the, the lit candle it's the the light that's shining upon what's occurring and the word sati is often translated as mindfulness but it also means it comes from the root to remember or the root word memory so there's a real sense in this term sati s-a-t-i remembering that which is aware remembering that which is aware that's the lamp that's already lit and by the already lit meaning i mean just simply you're not creating the awareness you don't make that awareness happen it's recognized it's a it's awareness wakes up to itself and recognizes its own luminous quality to know And when we are able to remember that, when we're able to remember to rest within awareness, to abide within awareness, to, to, to relate to our life from awareness, the next piece of the Dharma starts to open up, which is that we, from awareness, we are able to see what the lamp shines upon. And what we are able to see are the conditioning, the conditions and conditional, the conditionality of our life. So we get to, we start to see what our body is like more closely, the interplay between our body and our emotions and our mind and our thoughts and feelings. We see the entire expression of everything that influences and shapes and conditions us and the value of the lamp knowing the light of awareness knowing conditions is that in the in this state of not remembering awareness so when we're forgetful when we're kind of lost in a state of a dream state when we're forgetful the likelihood of us reacting to conditions from a habituated unconscious way is quite high but from the position of being aware and awake to conditions we open up this dimension of possibility where we can now start to relate to the conditions we're aware of in a new way and if we if we we didn't have this capacity to be awake to something we would literally be um, nothing more as as the as the biologist uh, Richard Dawkins described in his book The Selfish Gene. We'd just become lumbering robots to our genes, without awareness, without the capacity to be awake to conditions. We would be, in a sense, victim to whatever those conditions were. We, there would be no way of stepping out of the matrix of the conditions we experience. But in waking up to awareness, just through the cultivation and the remembrance of our awareness, we can look upon these conditions and open up this capacity for choice, choose what we're, how we're going to be, to really look into the nature of what we're experiencing, to see what the cause and effect relationship between things are, and over time, through getting more familiar with the way we've been conditioned, 
we can start to bend the arc of that conditioning in the direction, in an onward leading direction of greater wisdom and compassion. So that's, you know, in a sense of discovering the Dharma within oneself. I think there's, those are, I'm being a little bit general here, but those are two broad general statements that I think I found to be helpful. That one, we're practicing to just to remember the nature of awareness, the light that's already on. And we, again, that because it's already on, we don't have to do anything to get it on. We just have to relax and rest into it enough to learn, start to trust it. And that's what we do in our sitting. We just relax, let the conditions of our experience unfold, but thoughts move around, sensations do their thing, feelings, memories, plans, fears, anxieties, all of the whole thing of our life can arise and do its thing within the vessel of our stillness. And it's our awareness that allows us to see it and then see what the impact of that is like on us. And from that scene, we now have it, we, we, we invite, we open up the possibility of choice. So that's the journey. And I would say that a Sangha, a practice community like ours, and this particular song, I would say, is just a small, teeny, teeny, tiny twig of a branch on this ginormous, enormous uh, tree of Dharma from, from the time of the Buddha. And we've just got a handful of leaves scattered on this, on this branch of our, uh, as practitioners here. But the whole uh, value of a Sangha like this on, on one level is to support and remind us as individuals of the light on within us. So in a lot of my classes, I'm, I'm, I consider myself an awareness guy. I just hit that drum of notice awareness. Notice what you're aware of and what, where, what you're, where, where the awareness is or where, where do you feel the awareness from, sensing awareness. And it's not that we hide out in awareness and then now like sort of um, just leave it at that. But it's from that awakening to the nature of awareness, really resting in that, that we can then start to see more comprehensively, more objectively, the nature of conditionality. And, and I'm going to be probably exploring this more in future. I will be exploring this more in future talks, not will be, or not in, uh, might be, I will be. But the, the role of of, un of what understanding conditionality means in our practice and how we start to see that our sense of self, our ideas about ourself, our views about ourself, our opinions about ourself, our ideas, views, and opinions of others are all conditioned. They don't arise in a vacuum. They're all dependent on some things coming together at a specific point in time and when we start to see that our own being is a, like our own i i a sense of self our own identity is a is a is part of this matrix of conditionality is part of the matrix of changing conditions 
we start to, when we see it in ourselves, we start to recognize intuitively that all beings are like this. And this really goes a long way to, to breaking down some of the, the rigid views and polarizations within our minds that we see on evidence in the world right now. That certain people are intrinsically this way, certain people are intrinsically that way. We start to see that these perceptions arise due to causes and conditions. And the more comprehensively we can begin to understand and appreciate those con causes and conditions, we're much better able to come in with compassion, which is, again, the energy, the motivation, the intention to relieve suffering through our clear seeing of it. <clears throat> so we call our Sangha the Riverbird Sangha. And just as I've offered a few interpretations of what discovering the Dharma implies, I just want to give a potential interpretation of what our name might indicate. I think I've done this before, but the the river in our name, uh, in one interpretation, is the is the river of conditions of our life. So the the river is a is a is a is a, is a sort of a stand-in for the whole matrix of conditionality that we are a part of. And I mean like our biological conditioning, our sociological, social conditioning, our economic conditioning, our political conditioning, all of these fold into our how we um, take ourselves and how we see others. So the river is, this, is the stand-in for all of those conditions of our life. And the bird, the reason I went, we went with bird one level is that in uh, in Buddhism, awakening is considered to be uh, the growing of two wings, wings of wisdom and compassion. And when the wings uh, flourish, when the wings are strong and, and have grown, the bird is able to fly with freedom. Not in a way that it's separate from conditions anymore, but it's now in a position where it can live, and I, I choose my words carefully here, live as freely as possible within which the conditions allow. And I, and you know, we're all dealing with different conditions and some conditions are really, really hard. But the practice, the Dharma invites, how can we look into the heart of our conditions, the heart of our own conditioning? And how can we discover a path within ourselves to not just get by, but to actually start to thrive, to, to really contribute our life energy to um, the welfare of ourselves and others. So in a way, I guess what I want to close with is that a sangha is a space of individual, a space that individuals create so that individuals can make this journey inward by themselves. One of the last live retreats that T Terry and I taught, I was riffing on this idea that retreat time is an exercise in social solitude. Sounds like a 
kind of a, a paradox, social solitude. Solitude's away from people, right? Well, I, I took the definition of solitude that suggests solitude is time with your own mind independent of the input from other minds. And I was reflecting on how most of us, unless we actually make room for it, are in a state of solitude deprivation. Not everybody, but with smartphones and gadgets do, doing what they do now, it's it, if you get the slightest inkling of boredom, there's a there's a slot machine of activity in your pocket that you can just get into and 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 limit your access to solitude. But in retreat and in practice here, we come together and the primary, uh, one of the primary functions of the container of our group is so that each one of us can make that journey into our own heart. To discover the Dharma, and this, and this is what I was trying to get at last week a little bit, but to discover the Dharma in our own experience. So the emphasis of practice that we try to share here is not that we sit down so that you know you you get proficient at producing the right experience. I.e., you follow your breath and you stop your thinking, you your third eye opens up and there's a little starch that comes in there, there's a pleasant ear, hum in your ear, and you feel blissed out. We're not practicing like that. We're practicing with receptivity with kindness towards our normal experience, which includes the things that give us grief, the things that activate conflict in us, either interpersonally, intrapersonally, collectively, politically. If you're, most of you I know are coming in from the United States and we're on the eve of a, for me, an anxiety ridden election. And, and many of you are on from Europe or elsewhere looking on on that. Um, so we encounter this when we sit. And the question is, when we encounter the conditions that bring us conflict and grief and anxiety and fear, the invitation of the practice is from the, the light that's already on. How can we open up the opportunity within ourselves to grow to be with those conditions in a way that is the idea of a in a way that is informed by a, an enlarged heart it's not just simple reactive one line cliche well they're that way because and they're like that because when we understand conditionality we know it can't be like that so i'm at my time the sangha as i wrote down it's a community to support the inward journey into ourselves and that brings me to the reminder and maybe a news announcement to some of you that our Sangha's schedule is changing next week. And particularly the biggest change to the schedule is the change of this session. And 
um, if you haven't heard, all our sessions now are going to be at a uniform time, Monday through Thursday, 7 a.m. Eastern Standard. And the, the reason for that change is twofold. One is uh, that, as I said last week, two of the biggest requests we've received over the years, the two years that we've been alive, is um, from Europeans that make up a significant constituency of the Sangha who've been asking for a Dharma session at their time. And, and I, you know, for, for many Europeans, it's in the middle of the night right now. But the other request is that for busy people, they're requesting 60-minute practices. Um, and we're, we're trying to accommodate those two requests in this new schedule. Um, if you go, if you check out our newsletter from, from yesterday, um, I think it was or, or on Sunday, we talk about what the, the new class structure is going to look like. But in essence, there will be a 60-minute block with an optional half-hour block each session. So if you need to go, you can come for your 60 minutes, for your physical practice, for the meditation. And then after the 60 minutes, if you want to uh, log off, that's fine. Um, but if you want to stay and either have a, a, a period of 15 minutes of meditation after your physical practice with me and Terry, we'll hold that space for the sitting and then hold a space for some discussion after that sitting. So we're still going to be offering a time to practice, to reflect, and to discuss and connect. But I know, and this is this is what I guess I've been building up towards, I know that some of you here um, will likely not be able to participate live to this session going forward. And that saddens me. And, and it's not because I know you don't want to or anything like that. I know it's just because of time zones where you are, where you happen to be, or your where your what your schedule is. And for you, I want that's why I was trying to share a little bit about my own practice with listening to recordings, because one of the things that I, like Terry and I keep hearing from people in the song is they this idea that well, I can't make the live one, and I don't. I only want to show up to the live one, which I understand. There's something about this idea of we're, we're live together. But in the broader journey into your own heart, a recording can actually be uh, every bit as transformative and helpful and supportive as a live session. Um, and just like I was feeling very insecure that my practice wasn't deep enough, I wasn't sitting long enough, I wasn't retreating long enough, et cetera. We can get, it's very easy to become idealistic about what it should be, what our practice should look like. Um, and it's sort of in the spirit of Larry Rosenberg, I want to just end with a another kind of grab you by the back of the neck Zen line which is that if we get too idealistic about our practice, we're in danger of decapitating the Buddha. What does that mean? Decapitating the Buddha. The Zen folks have that famous phrase, if you see the Buddha on the road, kill him. Some of you are looking like, because Josh, it is late here. I mean, we've had a time change. We're one hour later. <laughs> it's been a long day. Josh may not be getting enough oxygen where he's sitting. What does he mean by that? 
what I think the Zen folks mean by that statement is that if you perceive, if you think you're perceiving the Buddha outside of yourself, you are deluded in forgetting the Buddha's not outside, but within you. So it's not that you would actually literally commit homicide and kill somebody for mistaking them to be the Buddha. What the Zen folks are saying is you need to, you need to kill that delusive, delusive uh, illusory dilute. You need to kill the delusion that the Buddha is outside. So I'm, I'm speaking to this because we are going through changes. We're always going to be in changes. And if during changes, we're always looking for perfect conditions to practice, we'll be creating unwittingly maybe a, an idealization of what good practice is supposed to look like. And we have externalized and delayed realization of the Buddha within. So no decapitations, no homicides tonight. Just looking and remembering the Buddha within. Okay, so I hope there's no spiritual homicides on your hands. I hope there's no uh, decapitation of the Buddha. I hope those reflections made sense to you. I hope they opened up some interest and inspiration for you to dive into your own practice with more wholeheartedness or earnestness or sincerity. And I hope it actually stimulates you and inspires you to come practice with us. We'd love to have you. We'd love to see you. Um, we really have a growing community of very warm-hearted um, and sincere folks uh, of all ages, of all capacities, of all abilities, practicing these very accessible practices of yin yoga, qigong, and meditation to realize the truth of the Dharma within. So if you like that support, do check us out. There's a link for you in the show notes. There's two weeks of free membership in our in our practice community, as well as a free gift of an ebook, the what, why, and how of Yin Yoga. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I wish you all my best. <laughs>